Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 34 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, September the 23rd. First, I'll be talking to Damien Anderson, ANZ Country Manager for HiBob the company behind Bob the HR platform, transforming how organisations operate in the modern world of work today. He'll talk about Hype Bob's mission and vision and what it means for Australian business. And I'll be talking to Indeed economist Callum Pickering about the latest jobs figures. But now let's talk to Damien Anderson. Damien, how does Hype Bob work as a people management platform? Leon, Hype Bob's a modern people management platform. I think what differs between Hype Bob and the rest of the market and the vendors in the market is that Hype Bob's been specifically designed to be an HRES platform that all employees can benefit from. Traditionally, most HRES are built as HR tools, specifically for HR teams. So in the modern world of work where you've got employees who are working remotely, globally, fast-scaling businesses, the ability for all employees to benefit from a single platform where they can connect, communicate, be attached to the mission, the vision, the values, uh, and be recognised is, is a huge difference between how traditional HRES models have been built and the purpose. So we're very much aligned for modern organisations that are scaling rapidly and traditionally in multiple countries and, and moving very quickly. So basically you're dealing with multinationals? Look, it, it's a range, right? And I think one of the things that's great about HiBob is that we've got a very large addressable market. We will work with companies that are 50 and scaling quickly, 50 employees, I should say, all the way through to five and 6,000 employees. A lot of our companies are just locally based but have regional offices and they still have the issue of remote work and how do they keep attached to the organisation. But we also deal with a lot of multinational corporations who might be just moving into their second or third region and they need the support of a system that's got the flexibility to support the complexity that comes with moving into new markets. Well, who exactly are HiBob's customers? Yeah, really big range, but you know, anyone who is investing in their employee experience, who want to make sure their employees are having really good recognition and a great career journey, uh, they are traditionally in more modern industries. We work in a lot of tech, bio, finance, professional services, but all the way through to 
construction companies as well. You know, anyone who's looking to retain and get the best out of their employees. And as we've moved into the APJ market over the past 12 months, we've partnered with around 150 different clients. Uh, they include the likes of PEXA, OES, High Pages, Airtasker, a lot of the household tech names that we know well uh, in Australia and beyond. But what challenges would these organisations face? I think if you get to the hub of why people use a people management platform or an HRAS, it's, you know, traditionally they have a single source of truth, right? So if you think about what a lot of companies are dealing with, it's either a very SMB solution that doesn't really scale with complexity or it's spreadsheets. And we all know what working with data on spreadsheets is like, right? So organizations want a single source of truth across their organization employee data. And this is everything from professional information like title, tenure, salary, location, all the way through to more personalized information. What are your hobbies? What are your superpowers? What are things that you like? And the, you know, the partners that we work with want a real view of their, their, their teams and their employees. And this allows them to work in more detail with these employees, right? So you've got the single sort of truth. You've got the ability to pull organizational charts, do workforce planning for the future. You've got talent modules, which allow you to do one-on-ones, set goals, OKRs, do employee life cycle surveys, uh, see trends up and down in terms of the engagement and happiness of the employee base, and also do compensation planning. So it's really, you know, Highbob's very much an end-to-end uh, people management platform, and we can take you from hire to retire. So, I mean, it's a long way from from uh, Excel spreadsheets. Correct. Yeah. Look, you know, you'd be amazed at how many organisations have grown at such a rapid scale and pace that they just haven't put the systems in to help them grow in the way that they need to. And, you know, we can talk to a, a 50 employee company that's using spreadsheets, and that's not a particular surprise. But there's also plenty of uh, companies out there with 500, 2,000, 5,000 employees they're still largely operating, especially for compensation and talent management on spreadsheets. And, you know, that's a difficult to get a single source of truth across what's actually happening in your organisation. How long has I been operating? Uh, it's our seventh year this year. Uh, we've partnered in that time with around 3,000 customers globally, and we operate in around 100 different countries. Originally founded in Israel, but commercially headquartered out of the U.S., so we now operate across a number of different regions. We're across Europe, Duck. Uh, we're entering into Asia, ANZ, the US, UK. And so, you know, the company's just gone from strength to strength over the last seven years with consistent triple-digit growth, which is really propelling us into these new regions. And I think one of the exciting things about Highbob is the customer demand usually leads us into the new regions. You know, great example, while we launched around 12 months ago in Australia and New Zealand, about 30% of our customer base in this region is actually from Asia. So we've got a number of clients that are coming from Singapore, Malaysia, the Philippines, and that's very organic growth. Uh, you know, we haven't done anything to really uh, go after that market. I think the Bob brand name is really strong. And what's really interesting is that it's actually word of mouth. So, you know, HR managers become very attached to the tools they use to run their organization. So we've got a lot of managers who have worked in a company that have previously used Hi Bob. And when they work into a new organization, you know, if they don't have a tool or it's an outdated tool that's not supporting the growth, they'll want to bring Highbob over with them as well. So that is a really, you know, an amazing part of Highbob is we just kept getting drawn into new regions through customer demand.
So, I mean, you've been going for seven years. What, what are the next steps? Yeah, look, it's a really good question. And it's always, you know, Ronnie, uh, our CEO and co-founder and Israel David always talk about just building the best HRAS in market. You know, we, we're a long way away from finalizing the vision of the product and what we want to do. And we are still very much a product-led organization. We want to continue to develop value in the, the system and continue adding features and functions. You know, a good example is in this quarter, we're launching workforce planning, which is a new module. Uh, but we're also then adding additional features to our five or six existing modules, uh, continuing to deepen them. So we, we just want to build the best HRA out the HRAS in market. And, you know, the, the catch cry of the product team is we should build the last HRAS that our customers will ever need. And you, and you have the technology, obviously, for that, or do you have to keep developing the technology? Yeah, look, uh, as I said, we're a product, uh, really a product-led company. So we continue to invest and develop and uh, enhance the product. You know, we've, one of the biggest departments by employee count at HiBob is the development team. And we continue to grow that team with ambitions of doubling it over the next 12 to 24 months. Right. So what are your growth plans? I think, you know, we, we recently uh, completed a $150 million US dollar Series D round. And, you know, 10 months earlier, we completed our Series C, which was also another $150 million. And uh, I think these uh, capital raises are fantastic if we talk about them in the right way. And that's because the, the money is there to invest in the product, the people and regional growth. So, you know, the, the real focus for us is not to do anything outside of what we've already been doing, which is strengthen the product, move into markets where there's demand uh, and invest in our people and our team so that we can also support our customers in the best way possible. So these funding is very much about the growth of the company, these funds. Absolutely. You know, we've got fantastic investors, General Atlantic, Bessemer Ventures, and Seek Investments uh, locally as well. And when you get this kind of funding, it's because you're doing something right. Uh, and I think we're doubling down on the strategy. I don't think we're departing from our original strategy, which is just to build the best HRS in market for mid-market organizations, and then continue to expand into new regions. Uh, you know, as I said, the the organic demand for us in Singapore and beyond into Asia is certainly there. And that's something that we're exploring at the moment for, you know, 2023 is, is what are we doing in these markets? Are we moving into them? We're establishing teams, partnerships, and that funding just helps us to fuel that growth and that expansion. Okay. So obviously uh, Singapore and Southeast Asia are a huge growth market. Yeah, we believe so. And again, based on the organic demand that we've already seen from those markets, it, it is a competitive space. Uh, there's lots of HRS players out there. There's a lot of legacy systems. There's a lot of new systems popping up. But again, I think that the biggest thing for us is, is we can continue to get that customer advocacy. Uh, and we see those HR managers you know, moving from one from, from your know, previous country into a new company and looking to bring Hybob with them. So uh, where there's demand, we will go. Where there's the market opportunity, we'll definitely invest in. Well, Damien, thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for your time, Leo. And now let's talk to your data economist, Callum Pickering. Well, Callum, the unemployment rate came 0.1% higher at 3 What's your take on it? Yeah, it was a little bit of a surprise that the, uh, the unemployment rate did tick up. The labour market had been tightening, obviously, uh, for much of the past 12 months, and certainly the forward-looking indicators such as job vacancies suggest that it was going to tighten further uh, in the next, say, three to six months. So it was a little bit of a surprise that it did tick up, but I don't think it's anything really to worry about. This was the second lowest unemployment rate we've had in 48 years, so the labour market is, by any measure, extremely tight. And like I said, given Given the strength we are seeing in, in things such as job vacancies, there is a good reason to suspect that the labour market will 
strengthened a little bit in the near term, um, despite the concerns we obviously have around high inflation and rising interest rates. What happened to the participation rate that was up? Yeah, the participation rate uh, bounced back up to 66.6% uh, from 66.4%. So that was a good result. And that was one of the reasons why uh, employment was able to jump by uh, 33,500 people. And yet the unemployment rate managed to, to increase. So it is one of those situations where higher participation sort of absorbs the employment increase. And then you get this bump in, in the unemployment employment rate as well. And that's another reason why we shouldn't be too concerned about the fact that the unemployment rate jumped to 3.5%. If we cast our mind back a month ago, one of the reasons the unemployment rate got down to 3.4% in the first place was because the participation rate actually fell in, in July. So it was sort of the opposite um, situation last month than it was this month. And so we have had a bit of fluctuation there with the participation rate, um, which has sort of been driving the unemployment rate up and down a little bit. If you sort of group those two months together, you get a sense that the labour market's probably stabilised a little bit with the unemployment rate at about 3.5%, which feels about right given everything we know about the labour market and does you know, confirm that the labour market is still very tight and performing reasonably strongly. Okay, and you're saying that the participation rate might explain why it went up to 3.5%? That's right. Um, big movements in the participation rate can do some odd things to the unemployment rate, given how these things are, are calculated. Uh, in July, the participation rate fell by 0.4 percentage points, which is a very large move. It partially recovered in, in August, and it's driving some of those fluctuations we have seen in the unemployment rate over those two months. Overall, though, like I said, I think the labour market remains very strong, um, certainly very tight, and there is cause for, for optimism with regards to the labour market outlook as well. You know, if Australian businesses are so concerned about inflation and higher interest rates, then surely we would expect them to pull back on their hiring. Well, that's what we would expect to see, and we haven't seen that yet. Uh, the number of job vacancies across the country is about 480,000. That's twice as many job vacancies as we had before the pandemic began, which indicates that the businesses are desperate to hire. They desperately want to bring people on board. And traditionally, when job vacancies are high, what we usually see is unemployment rate falling. That's a, a long-running sort of economic relationship between the two. And that's one of the reasons why I'm pretty optimistic that the labour market is going to tighten a little bit further over, say, the next three to six months because businesses are looking to fill those roles, going to bring people on board. That's going to bring the number of unemployed people down. It's probably likely to pull some additional people into the, the workforce itself, which could also boost uh, participation. But it's very hard to see the labour market deteriorating meaningfully in the near term while there are so many jobs out there looking to be filled. Surely you would say, suggest surely that the upward momentum in the labour market has slowed. That'd be right. Well, I, I think that's a reasonable conclusion. We've seen extremely strong uh, employment growth over the course of this year. Uh, employment overall is up 290,000 uh, people so far in, in 2022. That would be a great outcome for a full year, let alone an eight-month period. Full-time employment's up 332,000 uh, over the same period, so it's been even stronger. So we have seen incredible gains over the course of 2022, but gains going forward are going to be a lot harder to achieve. And that's just naturally what happens when the unemployment rate gets down to near half-century lows. Now, pushing into that low 3% range, even into the high 2% range, is going to be really difficult because it becomes more challenging to fill a lot of the roles you're looking to fill. So while businesses certainly want to bring on more people, uh, it's going to become more difficult to find the right types of people. This suggests two things. One, the economy might be bottoming out. And secondly, it might reflect immigration starting to rise. Would that be right? Well, immigration is certainly one thing to, to keep an eye on. Obviously, the, the federal government at the recent job summit 
um, announced that they were going to increase the cap on permanent migration, which could provide a little bit of relief for a lot of businesses that are struggling to, to fill some roles, um, particularly those roles require, you know, a high level of skill. So that could certainly come on board. And, you know, depending on the speed with which that happens, um, sort of industries affected, that could potentially put a little bit of upward pressure on the unemployment rate. Not much. We're, we're talking about maybe one or two, point one, point two percentage point type thing. Certainly not a, not a big impact, but it's certainly something that, that, that could, you know, potentially put a little bit of upward pressure on the unemployment rate over, say, the next year or two. Um, and I, I, ultimately, I think that would probably be a good thing. It, it's not ideal to have businesses sitting there not able to fill a lot of highly skilled roles. That ultimately makes it more difficult for businesses to expand their operations. It makes it difficult for businesses to, to operate at full efficiency. Um, that's certainly not what we want from an economic standpoint. The labour market figures are fairly broadly based, but some states seem to be doing better than others. Would that be right? Yeah, the unemployment rate does vary a little bit across the country. Uh, it is incredibly low in the nation's capital at 2.7%. WA has been a strong performer throughout the pandemic recovery with an unemployment rate of 3.1%. Queensland not far behind at 3.2%. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got Tasmania at 4.9%. Now, normally an unemployment rate of 4.9% is, is really quite good. Pre-pandemic, we'd definitely be happy with that. But given some of the labour market outcomes we've been experiencing across the, the country over the past, you know, six to 12 months, it is perhaps a little bit of a surprise that we, we do have a, a relatively weaker uh, labour market in states such as um, Tasmania. So there is a fair bit of variation there. Uh, it does indicate that some states could catch up. You know, there is, there is scope for some states to, to catch up with regards to labour market conditions. So that's sort of where we are. But uh, it would also suggest some states like Tasmania could drive the unemployment rate lower in the near term. Would that be right? Well, well, there's certainly scope for, for greater employment gains in Tasmania than there would be in some of these other states where the unemployment rate is very low. Uh, it would be much easier for Tasmania to, to push from 4.9% to 3.9% than it would be for WA to go from 3.1% to 2.5%. So that's something to, to bear in mind as, as well. The skill and talent shortages that we're probably seeing in, in states such as WA or, or Queensland are going to be you know, more difficult to overcome than the sort of challenges being faced in, in Tasmania just from a, a skills and talent standpoint. Now, the $64 question is what happens with the RBA and interest rates? I mean, the RBA has flagged that we'll keep raising interest rates, but these sorts of figures, and, and of course you had the Fed, now people are saying the Fed's going to raise interest rates by 75 basis points, some are even saying 100 basis points. Where does that leave the RBA? Well, I think it's reasonable to say that, you know, this jobs report, all the figures we've gotten this week, confirm that the Australian labour market is still running pretty hot. Um, there's still very strong demand for, for labour, um, which indicates that the labour market is likely to tighten a little bit further in the near term. Uh, I think it gives the RBA some confidence in, in what they're doing, that the that the economy can absorb the impact of these higher rates without tipping over into a significant downturn or recession. Now, the fact that central banks overseas are hiking very aggressively does suggest that the RBA is probably going to need to follow suit. And one of the reasons for that is because if they don't, the Australian dollar is likely to depreciate quite significantly. And if that happens, it actually puts up with pressure on inflation. The RBA, in an ideal world, wants the Australian dollar to be quite strong right now because that lowers the price of our imports and that ultimately flows through to the end consumer via lower prices. Achieving that is very difficult in the current circumstances, given that central banks are being quite aggressive. So what the RBA effectively is trying to do is just keep the Australian dollar pretty stable against the US dollar and other major um, trading partners. Uh, if they can achieve that, then, you know, we're not importing higher inflation from abroad. 
So that's sort of something that they will be certainly thinking about. They'll be watching what other central banks are doing quite closely. Uh, I think that ultimately, I, I don't think we're going to see any more 50 basis points increases, at least in the near term. But I certainly wouldn't be surprised if the RBA hikes at each of their remaining meetings over the over the remainder of the year. And so October, November and December, 25 basis points each time, which leads to a 75 basis point increase. In- it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Uh, the cash rate uh, over the course of, of the year. So we're still going to see a lot of um, tightening behaviour. Um, but I think the pace of tightening is probably likely to uh, ease off a little bit. Which would leave interest rates at uh, just over 3% at the end, by the end of the year. That's right, and that's consistent with market pricing. So the market's expected the cash rate to get to 3% by the end of the year for a while now. And certainly, based on you know everything I'm seeing in the economy, I think that's likely to, to occur. I think the Reserve Bank will move forward pretty confidently with what they're doing um, based on what they're seeing across the economy. Um, and it is likely that policy will continue to tighten next year, albeit at a much slower pace. Um, we're not going to see hikes at every meeting next year, but we are likely to see hikes maybe every couple of meetings or every third meeting um, over the course of 2023. Well, Callum, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. So what's happening in the news? Well, rich economies should hit oil and gas companies with new windfall taxes to provide help for countries suffering from climate change and people struggling with soaring energy and food bills, UN Secretary-General General Antonio Guterres said on Tuesday. The UN chief accused energy giants of feasting on hundreds of billions of dollars in subsidies and windfall profits while household budgets shrink and our planet burns. Guterres's comments at the UN General Assembly in New York come on the heels of a European Union proposal to introduce a windfall tax on oil, gas and coal companies, many of which have reported record high profits as Russia's war in Ukraine and an energy crunch send prices soaring. The European Commission is proposing that EU states take a 33% share of a company's surplus profits. The United Kingdom introduced a 25% windfall tax earlier this year to provide relief for people struggling with their energy bills. But newly installed Prime Minister Liz Truss has said she won't extend it to pay for a much bigger program of subsidies this winter and next. US President Joe Biden's administration mulled the idea in the summer, but it gained little momentum. Today, I am calling on all developed economies to tax the windfall profits of fossil fuel companies, Guterres told the Assembly. Those funds should be redirected in two ways, to countries suffering loss and damage caused by the climate crisis and to people struggling with rising food and energy prices. His comments also come as parts of the world are battered by extreme weather events supercharged by the human-induced climate crisis. More than 1,500 people died in Pakistan over three months of extreme monsoonal rain that scientists have linked to climate change. 
More than 300 people have died in floods in Nigeria this year, disaster management authorities there say. Typhoons and hurricanes have brought floods to Puerto Rico, the Dominican Republic and Japan this week. Drought is impacting vast swathes of the United States, China and Europe. Guterres warned that a winter of global discontent is on the horizon, with inequality exploding and the cost of living crisis raging while the planet burns. And Mark Zuckerberg's pivot into the metaphors has cost him dearly in the real world. Even in a rough year for just about every US tech titan, the wealth of raised from the chief executive of Meta Platform stands out. His fortune has been cut in half and then some, dropping by US $71 billion, that's $105 billion Aussie, this year, the most among the ultra-rich tracked by the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. At US $55.9 billion, his net worth ranks 20th among global billionaires, his lowest spot since 2014, and behind three Waltons and two members of the Koch family. It was less than two years ago when Mr Zuckerberg, 38, was worth US $106 billion, and among an elite group of global billionaires, with only Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates commanding bigger fortunes. His wealth swelled to a peak of US $142 billion in September last year, when the company's shares reached as high as US $382. The following month, Mr Zuckerberg introduced Meta and changed the company's name from Facebook and has been largely downhill from there as the company struggled to find its footing in the tech universe. Its recent earnings reports have been dismal. It started in February when the company revealed no growth in monthly Facebook users, triggering a historic collapse in its stock price, which slashed Mr Zuckerberg's fortune by US $31 billion, among the biggest one-day declines in wealth ever. Other issues include Instagram's bet on Reels, its answer to TikTok's short-form video platform, even though it is worth less in advertising revenue, while the industry overall has been affected by lower marketing spending because of concerns over an economic slowdown. The stock is also being dragged down by the company's investment in the metaverse, said Laura Martin, senior internet analyst at Needham & Co. Mr Zuckerberg said he expected the project would lose significant amounts of money in the next three to five years. And central banks are intent on driving the world economy perilously close to a recession. Late to see the worst inflation in four decades coming, and then slow to crack down on it, the Federal Reserve and its peers around the globe now make no secret about their determination to win the fight against soaring prices, even at the cost of seeing their economies expand more slowly or even shrink. About 90 central banks have raised interest rates this year, and half of them have hiked by at least 75 basis points in one shot. Many did so more than once, in what Bank of America Corp. Chief Economist Ethan Harris labels a competition to see who can hike faster. The result is the broadest tightening of monetary policy for 15 years, a decisive departure from the cheap money era ushered in by the 2008 financial crisis, which many economists and investors had come to view as a new normal. The current quarter will see the biggest rate hikes by major central banks since 1980, according to J.P. Morgan Chase & Co., and it won't stop there. This week alone, the Fed is set to lift its key rate by 75 basis points for a third time, with some calling for a full percentage point salvo after US inflation again topped 8% in August. The Bank of England is projected to boost its benchmark by 50 basis points, and hikes are also expected in Indonesia, Norway, the Philippines, Sweden and Switzerland, among others. As they slam on the brakes, policymakers are starting to lace their language with gloom, in a public acknowledgement that the higher they raise rates to quell inflation, the bigger the risk they harm growth and employment. There's little doubt that monetary policy will hurt. The question is how much. Analysts at BlackRock, Inc. reckon that bringing inflation back to the Fed's 2% goal would mean a deep recession and 3 million more unemployed, and hitting the ECB's target would require an even bigger contraction. Adding to the uncertainty is the lag before rate hikes affect the economy, in addition to the makeup of today's inflation. 
much of which stems from energy and other supply shocks central bankers can't control. Last week's higher-than-expected US inflation number for August sent the stock market into its steepest dive in more than two years, driven by bets on tighter Fed policy. Billionaire hedge fund manager Ray Dalio sees the prospect of a slump of more than 20% on equity markets as rates continue to rise. And a synchronised economic rebound from the pandemic is set to become a synchronised slowdown as surging inflation sets a speed limit for many countries, requiring aggressive rate hikes, while Europe's energy crisis and China's repeated COVID-19 lockdowns are also major obstacles to growth. Advanced economies are set to shrink next year, despite some signs of resilience, according to Barclays. The next few quarters are likely to be very challenging for the global economy, but much of the bad news now seems to be out of the way, reducing the chance of a new, of new downside tail risks, says Barclays' global chairman of research, Ajay Rajadhyaksha. He remains bearish on risk assets and overweight longer fixed income over global equities. Before key central banks meeting this week, expected to see further aggressive interest rate hikes announced in the US and Britain, he warns that high inflation and tight labour markets will prompt more rate hikes in advanced economies through 2022. And Russia's suspension of gas flows to Europe combined with interest rate hikes to trigger a deep recession in early 2023. And the Reserve Bank will tip the Australian economy into a recession and cause a material downturn in property prices if it lifts rates aggressively, as markets expect. Baron Joey Chief Economist Joe Masters says, The RBA has lifted rates by 2.25 percentage points since May, and markets expect the cash rate to reach 3.3% by the end of the year, before peaking at 3.9% in April next year. RBA Governor Philip Lowe said last week there was a narrow path to a soft landing for the Australian economy, which would be difficult to stay on if global economic conditions deteriorated. Ms Masters said on Monday the central bank will cause a recession if it raises rates as aggressively as markets expect. And the Reserve Bank has warned that rising interest rates will impact both home prices and construction activity, but it does not expect this to affect the overall financial system. The rapid series of rate hikes this year suggests an at least 15% slump in house prices, RBA head of domestic markets Jonathan Kern said. And a massive jump in insurance premiums is pushing up the cost of living for ordinary Australians, but the higher premiums are not translating into bigger profits for insurers because heavy rains have blown out their costs, new research has revealed. Decision Inc. analysed data from the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority and the Bureau of Meteorology and found a correlation between an increase in above-average rainfall and an increase in gross-written premiums from insurers. The data showed that gross premiums have increased from $8.3 billion in 2019 to $10.4 billion last year, in line with rainfall increasing from 102,000 millimetres in 2019 to 172,000 millimetres last year. Far from insurers profiting from higher premiums, the profitability of the general insurance segment declined during the period thanks to an increasing prevalence of catastrophes. The sector recovered from a $144 million loss at the height of the pandemic in 2020 to end last year $140 million in the black. But for this calendar year to date, the industry is back in the red to the tune of $11 million, the research found. The data showed that paid claims have increased from 1901 in 2017 to 4,801 in 2020 and 4,509 last year. Aidan Heek, Chief Executive of Decision Inc. Australia, said the need for insurers to manage their own risk was creating a big gap between the volume of premiums and their profits. A billionaire Andrew Forrest's Fortescue Metals will spend US $6.2 billion, that's $9.2 billion Aussie, on renewable energy projects to save over $1 billion in costs per year and hit its 2030 net zero emissions target. Mr Forrest travelled to New York to make the announcement at a CEO roundtable as part of US President Joe Biden's first movers coalition and the United Nations Global Compact. 
Mr Forrest said Fortescue's investment would take place between 2024 and 2028 and reduce net operating cost savings for Fortescue of US $818 million per year from 2030 at prevailing market prices for diesel, gas and Australian carbon credits. The company estimates it will create cost savings of US $3 billion by 2030, yielding returns on the new investment by 2034. An iron ore magnate Andrew Forrest has blasted fellow billionaire Elon Musk for dismissing hydrogen as a promising source of green energy, as Fortescue chairman laid out an ambitious new plan to completely remove fossil fuel from Fortescue's production by 2030. In New York City, to tout his company's new US $6.2 billion investment plan to fully replace diesel and gas with solar and wind energy within eight years, Mr Forrest took a swipe at Mr Musk's disdain for green hydrogen, whose development Fortescue has advocated and invested heavily in. Mr Forrest, who announced his decarbonisation plan in a closed-door session with the United Nations Secretary-General on Monday, said Mr Musk was a good guy, but as a business model, which depends only on batteries and hydro fuel cells, harmed that business model. He should get out and ask himself, am I really a climate avenger or just a businessman? If he knocks back hydrogen, then we know he's just in it for a buck, Mr Forrest said. Mr Musk, one of the world's richest men and chief executive of electric car makers Tesla in May, publicly slammed hydrogen fuel cells as the most dumb thing I could possibly imagine for energy storage. And the finance sector union said National Australia Bank staff were unhappy with the meagre pay deal being offered and would start industrial action which has not been taken at the bank for more than 20 years. The bank, which employs through 32,000 people, is currently in bargaining discussions with the union as it negotiates a new enterprise agreement for staff. It has offered employees earning less than $100,000 annually a 5% rise in the first year and a 4% rise in the second year. Those earning more than 100000 have been offered a 4.5% increase followed by 3.5%. As part of NAB's proposal, the annual review of more senior staff would continue to be managed outside the enterprise agreement as it has been for the past decade. The union says this means about 60% of the workforce would have no certainty of a pay increase. The company has also proposed an extra week of paid leave each year dubbed U-Leave for employees who have met their requirements for annual leave, rostered days off and long service leave within a financial year. The union wants a 6% pay rise for all employees and argued that its members, including those in very senior roles, were unhappy with the position put forward by NAB because it represents a pay cut in real terms for employees and does not keep pace with inflation. In July, Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers said he expected inflation would peak at an annual rate of 7.75% by the December quarter of 2020 and fall gradually, allowing wage growth to begin providing workers with real salary increases by 2023-24 fiscal year. And Albemarle boss Kent Masters says it will be hard for Australia to make the leap from mining key ingredients to making batteries for electric vehicles. That's despite the company having built one of the world's biggest and most advanced lithium hydroxide plants, estimated to have cost more than $2 billion, at an industrial park south of Perth. The chairman and chief executive of the US-based global battery minerals giant said Australia was coming from a long way behind and faced an uphill battle to make batteries in the absence of a car-making industry. Tesla and Technology Council of Australia Chairman Robin Denholm said last week that Australia was missing out on adding value to its mineral resources and urged the nation to establish infrastructure to manufacture battery cells and electric vehicles. Mr Masters said there was a power struggle going on between car makers and battery makers as demand for electric vehicles accelerated around the world and car makers were having a bigger say in where batteries were being made. Albemarle has a 49% stake alongside China's Tianqi in the world's best operating hard rock lithium mine at Greenbushes in WA's southwest and a 50% share along Minres in the potentially huge Wadgina mine in Pilbara. 
And the Albanese government should not reward big polluters by giving them new safeguard mechanism credits that do not equate to a direct environmental improvement, says a company that helped draft Labor's climate policy before the May election. As Energy Minister Chris Bowen's department reviews the safeguard mechanism introduced by the coalition government in 2016, Reputex warned Australia could miss its 2030 targets if carbon credits under the scheme did not reflect real and additional abatement. Under the existing safeguard mechanism, which covered 215 of Australia's biggest polluters who emit more than 100,000 tonnes of carbon each year, facilities have been able to change their baselines and increase their pollution. Labor promised during the federal election to tighten baselines under the safeguard mechanism to give the scheme much-needed teeth and force big polluters to cut their emissions. But the creation of safeguard mechanism credits, or SMCs, first proposed by former Minister Angus Taylor, has some concerns about how they will relate to existing Australian carbon credit units. In a submission to the Department of Climate Change and Energy, the Environment and Water, Repitex said that the option to give free SMCs to companies whose emissions were below an industry average equated to a financial subsidy. And the ranks of the very rich are shrinking. The total number of high net worth individuals in the local market took a rare step backwards over last year, dropping to 625,000 from 635,000. Shocked by mounting losses in the share market, the first priority of high net worth individuals now is to protect their portfolios, though they are increasingly reluctant to take advice from experts. According to the annual investment trends survey of the nation's richest, share market investments remain the biggest exposure, though there are growing interests in new style alternatives and private equity assets are increasingly popular. The survey produced for the investment platform Premium found that total assets under control among wealthy investors retraced in line with parallel falls in share markets, bond markets and property in 2022. But high net worth individuals continued to dominate the nation's private wealth with around $2.8 trillion in assets. And the federal court has fined wealth giant AMP $14.6 million for charging... 1,500 customers for financial advice are unable to receive in a win for the Australian Securities and Investments Commission. Justice Mark Mashinsky ordered AMP to pay the penalty, which represents about 16% of the troubled wealth manager's pre-tax profit for the half-year to June 30. The fine was well above expectations, and the $4.6 million penalty understood to be advocated by AMP. Still, it fell below the $17.5 million penalty sought by the corporate regulator. ASIC sued AMP in July last year, alleging that its subsidiaries had deducted about $600,000 in advice fees from 1,540 customers' superannuation accounts, even though the company was aware the customers had left the fund and could no longer get access to that advice. The conduct occurred between July 2015 and September 2018, just at the head of the damning Hainwell Commission, which found sector-wide instances of charging fees for no service and accused AMP of criminal wrongdoing. The regulator argued that AMP contravened its obligations as a financial services licence holder to act efficiently, honestly and fairly. And almost 2.2 million Australians are millionaires after soaring asset prices pushed another 390,000 adults onto the top rungs of the global wealth ladder, according to a report by Credit Suisse that says Australians are the richest people in the world. The figure probably marks a near-term peak for Australia, as falling property prices are poised to drag on Australia's paper wealth this year. The median Australian adult finished 2021 with a net worth of US $273,900, making them richer than the comparable resident of any other country, according to Credit Suisse's annual Global Wealth Report. The next wealthiest jurisdictions were Belgium, New Zealand and Hong Kong. Soaring share and property prices pushed median wealth per Australian adult, US $28,450 higher in 2021. The only country whose citizens' fortunes rose by more than that was New Zealand, where median wealth jumped 
by US $57,920. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Martin Fitz, the CEO of Pure Profile, to explore the e-commerce habits of Australians and what retailers should be doing about it. And I'll be talking to KPMG economist Sarah Hunter about what's ahead for the RBA and the economy. In the meantime, you can catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 